Today's guest, Maritain Wolfert, co-CEO and founder of Ravio. Just described, I think, is a good glimpse into how complex compensation management actually is. And it goes far beyond just compensation, right? Because ultimately, as a company, you have to decide on your rewards philosophy. It's not just about the base salary. It's about way more than that. You have to consider, do you want variable pay? Do you want to have equity or other long-term incentives? How do you think about benefits? How do you think about internal equity? Yeah. And ultimately, that's what we always keep on saying at Ravio. Even though we are uh, a data and an insights company at heart, we also recognize that there is always going to be a very high degree of subjectivity when it comes to rewards and compensation decisions. And we always look at compensation as a mix of both art and science, which to me makes it you know, really, really interesting on the one hand from an intellectual perspective, but also very challenging. And I think that's uh, one thing that over time as a company, we also want to help our customers with, which is just simplifying their decision-making. We're not here to tell them what they should or shouldn't do. We're here to give them more insights, but we also need to make sure that we don't overwhelm them with you know, too much data that ultimately might be noise. We want to give them data that is really actionable and that they can use to drive results for their companies. Merton and I talked about his journey on how he became an entrepreneur and founder of Ravio. So he first started in the investment industry, um, looking into different ventures um, of very famous Team Europe, um, back then in Germany, they were the same high speed founding venture builder like Rocket Internet and um, Team Europe. And, um, there he saw a lot of different strategies, verticals, industries, and a lot of things happening where he got really excited about, um, what's going on in the startup tech world. Then he started in the early days at Deliveroo and then ultimately launched, I think, more than 15 markets, including APEC Middle East. And um, at some point with a former boss of Deliveroo, he founded uh, Ravio because they were really unsatisfied with the whole setup that growing organizations have in terms of salary transparency, equal pay, and also how to run and design an organization in terms of a systematic and structural approach. Um, so Ravio is the solution to all of that and should also build valuable tools and insights um, in terms of compensation and many other topics um, moving ahead. So in the, in the episode, we talk a lot about all these different um, topics, his experience, and then um, enjoy and have fun then you can build trust and then you can spend less time communicating and more time just getting shit done. Then I went home and, and thought about this sentence. We basically put it on the table. Hiring takes time. People are trained. How to objectively judge certain situations. It's very, 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 very hard to change things. That was the learning. Entrepreneurs with empathy. On the people side. Hi, Merton. Nice to have you on my show. So maybe we start with a short introduction. Let's do it. Thanks for hosting me. I'm very happy to be here. Um... Introduction on my side, I can start uh, kind of on the personal level. I uh, am originally from Germany, but I grew up in many different countries around the world. And I'm now living in London, have been here for the past 10 years, married, and I am a dad as of almost a year ago. 
in addition to also being a first-time uh, startup founder. Thank you. Yeah, obviously lots of change in my life at the moment, but uh, I'm very excited and energized. And um, maybe now you touched um, several topics I want to ask. Where from Germany, Germany you're from? So I'm from a town called Balzrode, uh, which is for anyone who knows Germany in the Lüneburger Heide. Uh, but if you roughly want a location on the map, it's somewhere in the middle of Bremen, Hanover and Hamburg. Okay. Uh, it's, uh, it's the countryside, basically. Okay, nice. And how is the contrast for you um, in now living in London for the past 10 years to um, growing up maybe on the countryside in Germany? I think it's a, a different dynamic, isn't it? It is. It's very different dynamic, but I have to caveat that with um, the uh, fact that I haven't lived in Germany for the vast majority of my life. I was actually very little when my parents were quite adventurous decided to move to the States for a couple of years. Uh, and then uh, we also lived in Mexico City for a long time. So uh, I'm actually used to large cities. Hence, London to me feels kind of like a natural home. Uh, it's more when I go home to visit my parents, who are now back in Valsrode, that sometimes uh, you know I reminisce the early days of my, my youth. And you also said that you, for some time, worked in Berlin? Indeed, yes. Um, I was there a couple of times. The first one was while I was still a student. So uh, I studied at WHU in Germany. And uh, as part of my studies, I did internships every single summer. And my, I think it was my second internship ever. I did that at um, what was then called Team Europe Ventures, uh, working with uh, Lukas and Kolja. Um, and uh, yeah, I was in, in Berlin for that time. And then I came back a couple of years later while I was working for a company called Hotel Tonight, um, doing their international expansion and also spent a couple of months in Berlin. Nice. And how is Berlin for you different to London in terms of work dynamic? Um, to be fair, I'm basing this off of my recollection of working in Berlin um, many years ago. So it might not be very up to date nor accurate. So big caveat there up front. But for me, the pace in London is just different than Berlin. Um, I think it's generally the city that has a different pace rather than the uh, industry specifically. Uh, and what I mean by that is that a lot of people in London seem to be very mission-driven. Um, over 50% of the people that live in London are not from the UK. Um, many of them moved here for career reasons. And you can feel that in the energy of the city. So uh, during the week, people are very focused on getting to work, doing their work, and then getting back home. Uh, and in the weekend, there's a similar level of intensity. Whereas I always felt like Berlin had a bit more of a, I guess, like a, you could call it a bit of a lifestyle vibe. It was a bit more relaxed, um, which has pros and cons, right? From a personal perspective, that's very nice. Um, but sometimes in a work context, I guess it's maybe not what uh, an entrepreneur would like to see. But then again, if I look at the results uh, that Berlin is producing, And the tech side of things, uh, I don't think that, you know, this different uh, pace that I personally have perceived is leading to any different results. If anything, you know, Berlin is, is on the rise and it's producing pretty amazing companies. Yeah, de definitely. I think both are very interesting cities. And I also have the feeling that I think also the people in the UK, maybe they are more um, towards, they have a tendency um, that they like to achieve something in their career. And the purpose maybe is 
not that always the big thing, but it's more about making money, um, growing within the career and building something um, more ambitious, what I, I can feel there. And I think also in, in Western Europe or Central Europe, as you said, um, it's also a bit more lifestyle that people look more into the balance of work versus life and maybe don't see this as one thing, right? Um, yes, so that's interesting indeed. that you perceive it also in a certain way. Um, but maybe let's go further into what you're doing now. So you founded a company. Tell us more. So maybe I'll give you the backstory. Um, I've always worked in what I would call the startup space. I started working on um, the investing side of things, uh, working for a serial entrepreneur, Martin Varsavsky, um, and basically managing all of his startup investments and then his family office investments. And uh, after a while, I realized that while it's a super cool job, it also is not what I wanted at that stage of my career. And I thought of myself more as an operator. So I got really uh, a lot of energy out of being kind of in the middle of the action and driving results rather than being more on the sidelines. And then uh, I swapped over to the operating side uh, and built my career at uh, Hotel Tonight, which is a Silicon Valley-based company. It was one of the few companies that were um, growing really fast based out of Silicon Valley that had a physical presence in the team in Europe back in the days. And I was very keen to join such a company because my intention was kind of to learn from the best and um, not just in terms of how to build the business, but also how to build the culture of a company. And Hotel Tonight really kind of lived up to expectations from that side of things. Um, the company was acquired a couple of years ago by Airbnb and still exists. And um, it was legendary, not just for having one of the most advanced mobile products of the time, but also for having an extremely strong culture and very people-centric founders. And at that time, there weren't many companies, at least that I was aware of, that had that in Europe. So that for me was you know, a very, very good uh, learning opportunity. And from there, I moved over to Deliveroo back in 2015, I think. Yep, 2015. Um, company was still very small when I joined and uh, I had two jobs there. The first job was um, the founder hired me and said, look, I'm sitting on this this business that is growing like crazy in the UK. Um, it's taken off like a rocket ship and I just raised a bunch of money and I know that this business model will work outside of the UK. Um, I neither have the time nor the experiment, uh, experience myself kind of to internationalize the business. So I need someone to do it. You've done it before. Can you please do this? And uh, that was my first job, which I focused on for the first two years. So um, expanded Deliveroo um, into 12 different countries around the world, which was super exciting. Um, and then uh, over time, my role, I would say, naturally trans transformed from being the person who got the business from zero to one to managing a part of the business. And then for the remaining three years that I was at Deliveroo, I managed uh, the business in APAC and the Middle East, uh, which had grown to six countries and about 600 people by the time I left Deliveroo in 2020. And then I took a career break. It was supposed to be half a year, turned into a year and a half. And you know, maybe we can talk separately about why uh, that was the case, but I loved not having to do anything for a while. Um, and then uh, at some point in that period, I had this realization that I really would like to try being an entrepreneur. 
and ultimately um, ended up starting a company, which is Ravio, together with my former boss, the ex-COO of Deliveroo, Roy. Nice. And uh, Ray, who is um, not from Deliveroo, but could have well been uh, because he's uh, equally awesome as the other people that I worked with. And um, we basically uh, started a company that is very far from anything that any of us have previously done. Uh, and uh, I'm sure that you're going to ask why, but I'll let you ask the question first before I answer. Okay. And, and what, what brought you to um, founding Ravio? Yeah, so it's not the first time that I get this question because I don't have uh, any background, at least not a visible background in the wider HR space or the compensation space. Um, but uh, the story is that at Deliveroo, especially in the first part of my career, I was very much a generalist, right? I was in charge of expanding the business. And uh, Deliveroo grew extremely fast. Um, I think in, in our second year, we hired well over a thousand people um, in 12 yeah, different countries crazy. around the world. And uh, as a result, you can imagine that internally, things weren't always super smooth in the beginning. And especially when it comes to having a, the infrastructure that you expect a company of a large size to typically have, we just didn't have any of that. Um, and one of the big areas that was lacking was compensation, compensation management. So at some point, um, we had many people in exactly the same role getting paid very different amounts of money, depending on who hired them and where. And we also had you know, completely arbitrary job titles, uh, and there was no central system to manage all of this. And we just also didn't have a large enough or experienced enough people team. So at some point, we realized that we had an issue because employees were you know, voicing their unhappiness about certain compensation-related things. And as a result, uh, I was kind of thrown in the deep end uh, with a mission of, hey, can you please sort out this mess? And uh, that's when I first got exposure to the world of compensation benchmarking and compensation management. And uh, I initially naively thought that it would be super easy to do this, right? You just buy some market data and then you can make informed decisions, you roll it out and everyone's happy. Uh, so I thought it would be you know, a couple of weeks and it would be done. And it ended up taking uh, several months for me to understand, you know, first of all, what sort of data do I need? Where do I get this data? Um, then I realized there actually isn't any representative data for fast-growing tech companies in Europe like Deliveroo. So I bought a data set that I knew was already flawed from the beginning. And then the big, uh, I guess, aha moment also came when I tried to use that data in the first place. Because uh, if, any, if, if you've ever bought data from one of the large providers that have been around for decades, you know that ultimately what you end up getting is, is this massive Excel file that... Um, you know, it probably requires some sort of a glossary to even understand. So um, you're sitting there scratching your head saying, okay, how do I bridge the gap from this Excel file to the employees that I have in the business and that I want to hire in the future and build scalable system? And figuring that out uh, took many months. Uh, it was just, you know, yeah, down to first principles and a lot of uh, hours. We at some point even hired a compensation consultant who unfortunately wasn't necessarily uh, well-versed in the startup space. So we ended up ditching the whole project and rebuilding it from scratch. But long story short is, as a result of this project, um, I realized that compensation management and compensation benchmarking for tech companies in Europe is a huge challenge. 
Uh, and I have to say, like, I didn't realize the scale of the problem while I was working at Deliveroo. For me, that was a one-off project, and then I moved on. But after I left the business, I asked myself the question of, you know, what were some of the more painful problems that we had to solve as a business? And one of them was uh, definitely compensation. So at some point, uh, Roy and I started doing a lot of research and uh, asked other tech companies in our network about their experience and their frustrations. And they all said exactly the same thing, which is compensation is a, a huge nightmare to manage. It's impossible to get good data that is up to date from other tech companies like ours. And it's really hard to make decisions on the basis of this data because there are no good workflow tools in the market. And uh, the interesting thing is that I think over the past probably three years, compensation has um, come much more into the focus of tech companies. Previously, if I go back to the start of my career, compensation was almost an afterthought. You kind of tried to pay as little as possible, and it was a generally accepted, I guess, truism that anyone who joined a startup would have to take a salary cut if they didn't already come from a startup. So companies got away with paying very low salaries in the tech space and not having to use any benchmarking. And then over time, as the tech space grew in Europe, more and more funding started pouring into the industry and uh, larger companies started emerging. That changed dramatically. And I think then on top of that, you had the whole pandemic, which brought a lot of well-being related topics and people related topics such as compensation much more into the focus. And obviously you had this crazy hiring war that was going on among startups. So all of that taken together is, I think, one of the explanations why also strategically compensation today has a much higher placement in um, the C-suite than it used to have just a few years ago. So uh, I know I've been spending over five minutes answering your question, but the long story short is I built Ravio to essentially solve a problem that I had in the past. In case you like my show, please subscribe. I would really appreciate it. Yeah, it totally makes sense. Um, I can also now maybe mirror a bit my experience with what you described because um, I also own a company in in the people consulting field and we also do a lot of, I would say, um, in-house related projects where we really structure complete, completely uh, a new organization or a department that is qu quite big or complex or whatever, yeah, where the internal resources are not, I would say, experienced enough sometimes or just not there enough in terms of number. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the first things we always look at is what are the certain hypotheses or how do the managers see certain roles on, on how do they define them? And then you see sometimes very different variations of <laughs> maybe the same job title in a yeah. similar um, organization um, based on the background of the people they're coming from, based on the company stage the company is, based on the market, based on the industry. <laughs> There are so many different factors to consider which determine compensation, for instance, or also job leveling and the job families. Yeah, Because in a certain industry, maybe... Um, uh, I don't know. A software engineer is maybe paid less than in another industry or a finance manager or a salesperson. Yeah. It really, really mm -hmm. depends. And, um, I think it's really cool what you build because what I always do first or recommend first is 
interviewing some profiles or some candidates and then defining the profile in a certain way with certain attributes and um, associating it with market data just from the interviews you, you, you have, right? And then you have a very ad hoc and li live data set you can use to say, okay, that's probably currently really market realistic if you have enough interviews. But usually in bigger companies, there are bigger recruitment teams. There is a certain volume of um, interviews happening every day. Why not just using mm -hmm. in the first hand the applicant tracking system and gathering a database of, of salaries, right? And additionally, what you have in terms of benchmarking, I think that's a really, really nice addition what you can use then um, to make overall strategies on how you set up the whole organization. It's not just about compensation. It's also about organizational strategy. How do you want to pay overall and why, right? So I think this is also sometimes really understanding sometimes the root cause and the purpose of what you want to build in terms of targets and strategy on the long run and also what are maybe um, the compromises you, you would have to make and then you can consciously decide if you want to make them or not, right? <laughs> so I think that's absolutely a very, very relevant problem. Um, so where, where are and you? And I think actually um, what, what, what I think is interesting to mention here is um, just described, I think, is a good glimpse into how complex compensation management actually is. And it goes far beyond just compensation, right? Because ultimately, as a company, you have to decide on your rewards philosophy. It's not just about the base salary. It's about way more than that. You have to consider, do you want variable pay? Do you want to have equity or other long-term incentives? How do you think about benefits? How do you think about internal equity? Yeah. And ultimately, that's what we always keep on saying at Ravio, even though we are uh, a data and an insights company at heart, we also recognize that there is always going to be a very high degree of subjectivity when it comes to rewards and compensation decisions. And we always look at compensation as a mix of both art and science, which to me makes it you know, really, really interesting on the one hand, from an intellectual perspective, but also very challenging. And I think that's uh, one thing that over time, as a company, we also want to help our customers with, which is just simplifying their decision-making. We're not here to tell them what they should or shouldn't do. We're here to give them more insights, but we also need to make sure that we don't overwhelm them with you know, too much data that ultimately might be noise. We want to give them data that is really actionable and that they can use to drive results for their companies. Yeah, it's, it's, it's right. Um, and what, what are maybe the top patterns you see when you build Rabio on um, what are the main maybe drivers for a rewards um, philosophy so I think there are different mm. attributes that can be a leverage for how to design that philosophy how do you see that yeah look I think it always starts in um, maybe I'll take a step back so today Rabio focuses entirely on tech companies and predominantly on VC-backed tech companies or previously VC-backed tech companies because we also have a couple of public companies uh, in, our, in our customer base. So we're already looking at quite a narrow segment of the market, which is quite unique because most of these companies still tend to be founder-led. And I think that's why it also explains um, the answer to my question, which is in many cases, it starts with the way that the founders think about compensation. There are founders who fundamentally believe that um, their employees 
should be incentivized mostly intrinsically, plus with long-term incentives such as equity, uh, with a trade-off being on cash compensation, especially in earlier stage startups. And there are other founders, and this is maybe a more recent trend over the past few years, that uh, want to pay market rates or even well above market rates on cash compensation and also provide long-term incentivization through equity. Um, and obviously, they all expect the intrinsic motivation. But I think the founders actually have quite a, a big influence over a company's overall compensation philosophy. And in companies where uh, they're no longer founder-led, that typically trickles then down to the C-suite. Mm -hmm. And but maybe kind of to, to add on to this, I mean, you know, as much as I think the reality is still largely it's top-down decision-making, um, I would say, especially in the past three years, since the start of the pandemic, there's been much more upward pressure coming from the employees demanding more transparency around pay. So it's not so much that they're saying, hey, you have to pay me more. They just want to understand the decision-making process much more. Right? So they want to understand... You know, why is this company giving higher equity and lower cash? What was the rationale for that? How is uh, the average pay or the median pay in the company related to the wider market? Why you know, do we offer these benefit benefits? How do I compare against my peers? Do we have a gender pay gap? These are topics that are more and more coming from employees and being asked not just to the people teams, but to the wider leadership team. And that often companies don't have answers for. Um, either because they lack the insights and tools to answer these questions properly, or because sometimes the decision-making in the first place wasn't that rigorous and it was more you know, a patchwork of doing whatever felt right at the moment without necessarily sitting down from day one and defining a very clear and cohesive strategy. Yeah. And you mentioned first that at Deliveroo you managed APEC Middle East and the expansion. Maybe overall, do you have insights on how um, compensation overall maybe behaves or developed where, uh, in certain regions like APEC, the Middle East, Europe, and the US? Yes, and I think it's not that much regional as uh, more... There were two factors that played delivery. One was the company maturity, and I'm looking at delivery specifically, and the other factor was uh, the market maturity. So you have to keep in mind that in those five years that I was at Deliveroo, um, it was you know, a very high growth phase for the tech industry in general on a global level. Um, so basically, two factors happened simultaneously. One is when we first made um, the on-the-ground hires at Deliveroo, Deliveroo as a company was still early stage and still relatively small. Um, and even though the company had raised a large amount of funding for its time, um, it couldn't afford to pay very high salaries. So we did also have the expectation that people who came from say, consulting or investment banking would definitely have to take a salary cut, but we rewarded them with equity, especially if they joined early. Um, and that was relatively in line with the market. Like People generally didn't bat an eyelid at the idea of joining a startup and then taking a, a pay cut. But obviously, over time, Deliveroo grew really quickly. Um, and uh, had also more cash available to spend. Uh, started hiring more senior people who were in a better negotiating position to command higher market salaries. And hence, 
the salary level inside the company kept on going up year after year. And simultaneously, something similar happened in the market, where there were more and more startups, more and more funding going into the industry. And uh, as such, higher competition for talent. And then that led to increased salary expectations on the candidate side. Um, so I don't yeah, think I there also, were significant regional differences. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry, I just also want to mention that I think one thing also to consider is that you said when the company gets bigger, they, they have more cash to spend. The upside is also less in terms of the increase of equity, right? You can get, maybe get a lower multiple of your equity because the bigger it gets, the, the, the less you can multiply it to a certain amount that it's a big number. And I think that's also one thing that is a factor, right? The upside gets less because, um, it's getting more stable and stable and stable. And, um, then you can also, of course, pay more. Um, and you also then attract a different level of talent that is maybe super experienced, super senior, 25 plus years in a function. And they come in and do exactly what they need to do to take the company from one stage to another. And they don't even compromise at all for anything at, um, basically or salaries at all. The one caveat though is that. While the upside might be a little bit more capped, so is the downside. Exactly. And if you join on day one, you have no idea whether the paper money you're given is going to be worth anything at any point in time. Exactly. If you join a company at Series D, there's a, usually, depending on the company, obviously, but, um, um, and actually, now that I think about it, in the past two years, there are probably quite a few Series D companies where they're worth zero now, but the odds are just lower that uh, your equity yeah. is going to be worth zero. Yeah, very exciting. But you also wanted to say something else. I interrupted you. Oh, I was just going to close the loop on your initial question um, and basically say that uh, from my recollection, um, my time at Deliveroo, I don't think there was a fundamentally different dynamic in the markets when it comes to compensation that the company operated in, apart from obviously different countries having very different salary levels. Uh, and we had, uh, we had markets such as uh, Taiwan, uh, in our mix. And uh, that was always a new challenge for Deliveroo's compensation team, which at some point we ended up building in-house uh, because uh, it is notoriously difficult to get uh, reliable market data for tech companies uh, the further away you go from the really developed and large countries around this world. Mm -hmm. And is it sometimes difficult for you to get the data because it's confidential data, I guess, yeah? Uh, yes, it's very uh, interesting because it's quite regional, this, um, I guess, notion of data sharing. So maybe I should uh, take a minute to explain how Rabio actually works. So Rabio collects data from every single customer on a give-to-get principle. So we have two different product tiers. One is free and one is our paid offering. And uh, on the free tier, we give every single company that joins Ravio access to um, compensation benchmarking data for their home market in exchange for this company contributing their own data. And uh, companies are integrated with Ravio via an HRIS connection. So if they use Personio, Bob, Bamboo, uh, they would build a direct connection to Ravio. That means we would be able to access their employee database and see which job position gets paid how much. Companies can opt for two different integration levels. One is you share the full name of the employee 
and all the details. And the other one is they just share a unique employee ID and no name. Um, so that's how we try to accommodate uh, requests for more confidentiality. The reason why uh, we offer the option of onboarding with full employee names is because we actually have uh, workflow tools built into our platform that allow you to kind of see a specific individual, how their salary compares against the market, uh, how their salary compares against the salary band, and how their salary compares against their peers. So ultimately, when you make compensation decisions, at some point you will have to see the employee name. Hence, it is very useful to have that information in there. But to kind of abstract from that and answer your question, is it difficult for us to get the data? Of course it is, right? Because at the end of the day, even with an anonymous integration, um, it is still sensitive information and not all companies are comfortable um, sharing that. So there's a lot of due diligence that goes into the onboarding process with any new customer that we go through. Uh, but at the end of the day, we end up winning almost every single conversation because we have super high security standards. Uh, we kind of build Ravio with enterprise-grade security from day one. We're SOC 2, compl SOC 2 compliant. We have an in-house compliance team. So on that basis, I think we're able to give customers a lot of confidence that their data is going to be safe. And ultimately, um, most of the benchmarking providers that have been around for decades operate on the same basis of give to get because otherwise nobody would have any market data. Interesting, because I thought about investing in a company that is doing something sim similar but or want to do something similar for revenue data. So a, a drill down of revenue attribution in so looking at revenue in any, any attribute you can think of <laughs> mm -hmm. um, to break it down and I think for me as a founder I, I would be interested in knowing um, for my company versus the peers what are the sales cycles um, what are the deal sizes um, I don't know several attributes I would be interested in that do you think that there is potential also for other um, benchmarking tools? Absolutely. I think benchmarking is a very uh, maybe underrated or overlooked area. Uh, maybe it's because it's not immediately obvious um, or because on the face of it might not seem you know as fancy as building a consumer startup. But I think there's a lot of value because as a business leader, you're always trying to get some sort of a baseline for what you're doing and trying to understand whether your results And the direction that your business is heading heading in is is good or bad. In case you have any feedback or anything you want to share with me, please send me an email on thomas at peoplewise.com or hit me up on LinkedIn. And in case you really enjoy the show, please subscribe. I would really appreciate it. Any other observations you have what you want to share with, with us and our guests? Well, actually, uh, I was going to latch onto your question and say that This is also the mentality with which we're building Ravio. We consider Ravio an insights tool into people specifically, but not just compensation. So we already benchmark a bunch of different things outside of compensation. You can see, for example, uh, benefits and compare how your company fares against the market. You can see diversity, which is a very important topic. Uh, you can see how you compare internally. You can see how you compare externally against the market. We're about to launch a new tool that allows you to see how your workforce is distributed. So you, know, you can see X percent of your team is in commercial, Y percent is in engineering, and then you can compare that to the market for different sectors and different cuts of data. Um, 
So in general, um, because we're integrated in real time with other companies, we can access a lot of interesting real time trends. Also, we see how salaries are evolving. And I think that's where you were headed with your question. Uh, we see a lot of interesting trends in the market right now, some of which are very expected and some of which might be a little bit unexpected. So maybe to expand on that, uh, not surprisingly, the rate of new hiring is down for every single job family and every single country that we have data for um, very, very steeply from last year. Um, but I think uh, that is not a surprise to anyone, given how the funding environment uh, has become more challenging and also especially in your uh, specific segment what you touched into earlier yeah <laughs> vc back precisely <laughs> precisely exactly yeah so definitely we can see that there's a lot more conservative behavior which for any investor listening is probably a very reassuring thought um for anyone who's hunting for a job maybe not so much so i think that's that was a very obvious one um the interesting thing is that the biggest slowdown in hiring was in the people side of things um now The caveat to that is um, the people teams, and this includes you know, anything that is associated with people such as recruiting, were also the ones who ramped up the most uh, in the past 24 months. Uh, so if you know that, then the initial observation uh, is doesn't come as a shock, the fact that the people teams have the highest attrition rates and also the slowest new hiring rates. But uh, I think... Uh, especially for your target audience, you know, that's maybe something to keep in mind uh, when it comes to the next uh, planning cycle. And then the other thing that we saw is, um, and maybe this is also not entirely surprising, engineering hiring is still very competitive. Uh, so anything that is tech-related, uh, not just software engineering, but also data science, product management. And sales as well. Do you also see market. it on sales hiring? Because I see that as well, that the top two functions we are hiring hiring mainly is, um, or three actually is, a lot of executive searches are coming in, a lot of engineering and tech hiring, and a lot of sales hiring. Yes, but I think um, there is another factor at play here, which is if I look at attrition rates, guess which department has the highest one outside of people? Yeah, probably sales. Sales, right? So I think there's a lot of replenishing going on. Um, and then I think the net attrition is still slightly negative for for that uh, department. Mm. Understood. Um, Merton, so uh, very interesting. So what is the plan for Ravio? Where are you maybe currently um, standing as, com as a company, as a product? And what, what's the plan for the next years? So today we are very much focused on Europe as our core region. Um, we currently serve data for 15 European markets and as such, we have the biggest coverage. Um, our plan is to continue focusing on the insights. We're first and foremost a data and an insights company because we know that that is where the biggest value lies for our customer base. But over time, the plan is to expand more and more into useful decision-making tools around the data. And the first one that uh, we are very close to releasing is our salary bands tool, which is perhaps a little bit different from other salary bands tools in the market. Uh, a lot of research went into building it to make sure that it's scalable and solves very specific needs of slightly larger companies. And uh, we have a whole host of tools that are queued up for development. I think that the biggest challenge for us as a company is 
being very smart about what not to do, because、mm-hmm. there are a million different things that we could be doing,、uh, but we have to be very focused to make sure that we only work on those tools that really drive value for our customers, and we ignore the ones that you know might delight customers when they first see it, but actually don't really get used that often.、Mm-hmm. Cool. Any、um, one I don't know, but you know who I should interview next. Hmm. I'm not sure who you know, who I don't know, um, but um, I did look through your previous interviewee list, and、uh, obviously it's very Europe heavy. So I wonder if maybe you venture out into、uh, a different part of the world that maybe doesn't get that much much exposure.、Uh, and I probably wouldn't go to the U.S. because you know the U.S. is the biggest market for tech-based companies. And you could probably find an interview for any single、uh, subject matter already, but、uh, what about going to Southeast Asia, for example, as a region, or Latin America? There are many really cool founders there that are world class that are building companies that probably will pop up on the radar in a few years. Do you have that, someone?、Uh, nobody heard of yet. I might have,、uh, but I can maybe ping you、uh, separately. Definitely. Definitely,、um, yeah, Merton. So I think let's wrap it up. I I really liked、um, your insights. Thank you、um, so much. And I'm I'm totally behind your vision of、um, building something that is a tool for decision making in that space. I think it's highly needed, and it also makes I think hiring easier for managers also to make decisions. So I think you're up there um, um, or after something really big.、Um, it was really nice. To get to know you, and maybe when I'm in London next time, we can go for lunch or dinner or something. Would love to host you. You're always welcome at the Ravio office, and、uh, obviously, I can show you my favorite pub and、uh, yes. a bit of a glimpse into the London lifestyle. Okay, yeah, definitely. Thanks, and see you. Have a great. Great.、Time. Thank you so much for having me. It was my pleasure. <laughs>